Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update. In partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So this week, we hear the final arguments from both sides in the case against Dominic Ongwen. Um, remember the senior commander in the Ugandan rebel group, the Lord's Resistance Army? Uh, that was the big uh, rebellion, if you want to put it that way, against the Ugandan authorities. And there were lots of killings, mutilations. And what caught the world's attention was the forced abduction of children to become child soldiers, which meant that thousands of people took refuge in towns every evening in the north of Uganda. And thousands were forced into internal displacement camps. Yeah, and, and Ongwen was um, surrendered uh, in 2015, and his trial sten- started at the end of 2016. He was one of only five originally indicted LRA members, including the group's leader, Joseph Kony. Ongwen um, was captured or surrendered in the CAR. There's some discussion about it, and, and at least handed over to the Americans who were trying to find the Lord's Resistance Army leader, Joseph Kony, who was one of the five um, leaders of the LRA who were initially charged by the ICC. They didn't find anybody else, and Ongwen so now is the only LRA commander on trial in The Hague. And what's he been charged with? Um, there were a very long list of charges, weren't there? In the end, he has a very long list. There's 70 uh, counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity. It's for attacks on various internal displacement camps in um, northern Uganda. Um, He also faces a long line of sexual and gender based crimes. uh, charges um, when he was the com- because he was the commander of the LRA's Sinia Brigade. Yeah, and wasn't he also charged with abducting child soldiers as well? Abducting child soldiers, uh, forcing uh, child soldiers to fight, and also abducting uh, children to serve as um, not only as soldiers but also as sex slaves or forced wives. And I have to admit that I haven't actually followed every detail of the case. Um, I was conscious uh, that the prosecution was using some of the intercepted communications which was quite interesting that they got from the LRA and there were some some witnesses does anything stood out for you well I know that at the start of the trial a lot of the a lot of the testimony was all from this intercepted radio uh, traffic that the uh, Ugandan army basically intercepted what the LRA said on the radio which is how they communicated and they had they spent hours and hours and days and days with experts saying who said what on the radio to kind of prove uh, the command structure within the LRA and prove that Ongwen was actually the commander of the senior brigade. And I know that about 4,000 uh, victims were granted the right to participate. So it's one of the kind of substantial trials at the ICC. Yeah, and I know we have to make a remark that when we say 4,000 uh, victims participated in the trial, that means that they are eligible um, to be represented as uh, as victims, but it doesn't mean there were 4,000 victims actually in the court. I mean, there, we, we saw many victims and many people testified about what was done to them. In, by any means, it not the 4,000 who were all in the courtroom. So to fill in some of the gaps and to tell us what to expect, we've got Sharon Nakanda up by Skype. Sharon, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, guys. Hi. And she's going to give us, as her background as a transitional justice expert, a bit more insight into what's been going on. Um, Maybe this is the wrong kind of question, Sharon, but... It, what strikes me is, you know, what were the highlights of the trial for you? What have you noticed so far that really made you prick up your ears? 
Yeah, so thanks, uh, Janet and Steve. I think what uh, what struck me the most, first of all, was uh, the opportunity for victims to participate in this trial. That was very significant. It's something that we had been waiting for as uh, Ugandan CSOs that had supported the work of the ICC. So the fact that this trial happened and they were able to participate is something that was uh, significant. The other thing which, uh, of course, stood out in, in the course of the trial, and we had a couple of discussions about it, was the extent to which uh, the Acholi or the Acholi beliefs in, uh, in traditional spirits, the way it featured in the case, was something very significant, and and we must admit that it was it was quite different from the usual discussions we have when it comes to to some of uh, the international international cases. What I remember there is that um, the defence was particularly saying that this weighed very heavily on Dominic Ongwen, and it meant that he really believed that uh, his boss Joseph Cohn was. Um, would be able to kill him essentially if uh, if he didn't obey what uh, what Cohn asked him for. Have I got that right? Yes, yes, you have. And uh, when uh, when you discuss uh, with communities in uh, in the in the region, you'll still find a few of them who actually tell you that this this is what used to happen to them. This is what was happening to them. Some of those who were abducted tell the same story and say we could not escape because we feared what Joseph Kony could potentially do to us. We thought he could see into the future. We, we thought he would attack us. So those are, there are those who hold that view. But then you also have a section of the community that believes that, no, this, this was never true. If How come we were able to escape? How come we had family members who returned? That was a very big uh, kind of back and forth between the prosecution and defense with the main defense, uh, Chief Taku lawyer, uh, spending a lot of his time uh, having witnesses saying how, yes, Acholi believed in spirits and that uh, Ongwen believed that Kony could read his mind, that if he even thought about escaping, he would be killed and that he could look into the future and all that. And having people to talk about these religious beliefs and having psychiatrists come up with reports about how that could affect Ongwen. And then in the meantime, the prosecution coming up with witnesses and former child soldiers who did escape, explaining that they did escape and that, yes, they were fearful, but they could escape so that the prosecution could put forward that Ongwen had a choice, while the main defense seems to be that Ongwen had no choice. Um, maybe it's difficult to say, Sharon, but... Do- does that also connect up with this idea that Ongwen himself was abducted as a child, committed some crimes, maybe, as a child, but is only being prosecuted for what he did as an adult? But part of his defence is also that I were, you know, essentially I was psychologically damaged by this experience? Yes, that's certainly. And that, that debate is something, if you work with communities, that is something that takes up a large amount of the time. Because some of them do not understand how, first of all, how he could even come up with this argument on his mental, mental health, mental status, to exonerate himself from all the crimes uh, that he allegedly committed. So that that is still very debatable. But like I said, the views in the community are so diverse 
you will find you will find those who actually subscribe to what he's saying and and say you know he sh- he shouldn't be charged for what he committed as a child that's understandable but in adulthood if he didn't do it then who did it so that that just that reconciling uh, the ordinary person's understanding of the crimes that happened and then some of the legalistic uh, uh, terms that we've come up with, just the, the law as we know it right now is something that communities find very difficult to understand. How do you explain that to communities? Because this is a very unique case. We've never had, uh, at least in, in international law, this a former child soldier uh, on trial. And so can you... Can you properly explain what's going to happen and what, in a way, the terms are? Because we don't know quite yet how to define these things and what the judges will decide because we've never seen this case. There's no precedent. Indeed, that's the hardest part is explaining it to them because you must also... I think the analogies that you use with communities are really, really important. The language that you use as as you explain the complexities of these processes. So one thing we tell them from the onset is that this is how you handle your crimes here within the community because they have informal justice mechanisms that they use to handle their own crimes, traditional justice. And then you have this process by an international court, by an international mechanism that you may not, that may approach things differently from what you usually know. So I I know that in some instances we've given them examples of, for example, if there is someone who is mentally ill in the community and they beat up somebody, are they responsible for what they did? Then you see them discuss the issue and then you related to what is happening at the international level. Of course, it's not the same thing, but you must use examples that they understand as as a community. And the questions then uh, are quite interesting because in most cases you have those who tell you, oh, but I was also abducted. I, I had relatives who were abducted. Did they kill people? No, some of them did not. Did they raise to the level of commander? No, they did not. So you had to raise that level of commander because you were doing something that pleased the boss, who was Joseph Kony. So in that case, then it becomes, it's, it's, it's so hard to tell you exactly what, what, there is no uniform view on what the communities believe. So it's really diverse and it can be extremely complicated to explain. I can imagine also uh, working in northern Uganda. I mean, this trial at the ICC is the only one that is going on at the ICC to do with northern Uganda. And it's only a few specific communities who are involved, not everybody. It's only a few specific communities who may eventually, if he were found guilty, um, might get some form of reparation. So is that also difficult to explain to people? That is suddenly problem number one or challenge number one, to explain to communities, first of all, why when the lawyers come into the community, they have to meet specific a specific group. So that's the first challenge you have is explaining to them the difference and saying, you know, we represent these people, these people. However, this doesn't mean that you were not 
that you did not suffer some of these crimes. This is simply what the process requires us to do. You have those who have been allowed to participate, but of course it causes a bit of, a lot of anxiety within the community because the question now becomes, what happens to me at the end of this trial? Does it mean that whoever is participating was more affected by this conflict than myself? Does it take away from my victimhood? So those are, those are really complex questions uh, to address usually with communities because you have one family in which say only one person is participating and then the rest are not participating in the proceedings. So there are questions on what, what happens after this? What does this mean for me? And I think it goes back to the challenges presented by some of these processes uh, that you can't, you can never get every community member to feel a part of this, to feel a part of this process. If anything, sometimes it almost appears discriminatory. So I don't know how we, how I would advise that we navigate such difficult circumstances, because of course there is the logistical question as well. But perhaps at the end, uh, maybe at the reparations phase, if, if there is one, you could have another call for applications, which would give other victims the opportunity to, to apply at that stage. But again, one, a case that only covers four locations for crimes that were committed across greater northern Uganda. So you have the Teso subregion, you have the Acholi subregion, you have the uh, the Lango subregion, you have the West Nile uh, subregion as well. All these places were affected by the LRA conflict. So to choose only four locations is is quite limiting. And again, it, it presents also difficulties for some of the CSOs that have supported the ICC in these different locations over the years, because once the case opens up, uh, once the case starts, and then you have victims asking you, oh, you came here, you, you helped us fill out applications. You said that this case, once the trial begins, will be a part of it. Why aren't we a part of it? And so that's why it's important. I think it just takes us back to the importance of outreach outside case locations, the importance of the ICC doing this. I was going to ask, like, what can you explain away I mean, even if you do more outreach, there's always going to be the very much the discrepancy between the number of people who can actually be a part of this and that the only people who get reparations are people for crimes um, that he is convicted of and the number of people who have actual, who are actually uh, affected by it. Uh, you know, you can only explain it so many times. It's always going to be, in a way, a kind of inequitable process because of the selection. Can you ever have enough outreach to, to take away this problem? You can never have enough outreach, certainly, but you can do more outreach. That's one of the key recommendations we've made is that you may never resolve it with outreach, but you must try. What we've seen consistently is that once the case begins, the ICC scales down on its, on its outreach operations to largely focus on the case locations. I guess that's because of budgetary constraints, but that just leaves out so many people. I would think that ultimately, if the, the, the solution to it may lie perhaps in the reparation model that 
that is adopted or or the programs that are that are set up in communities if say you set up uh, uh, hospitals schools that can benefit a larger group of uh, of persons rather than those who specifically participated in the trial i think that that is something that would go a long way in Perhaps it doesn't resolve it completely, but it makes people understand that while you were not specifically a part of a process, you have somehow benefited from it at the end of the day. Just looking again at the trial itself, uh, Sharon, are you expecting maybe that Ongwen himself may something say something to the court? If he did, would people be, I don't know, glued to their computers, radio stations, whatever method they have of being able to... Uh, to hear what he has to say? I do not expect him to say anything. He hasn't said anything since uh, since the trial started in 2016. I, I don't expect that he would say anything at this particular point. What would be the impact if he said something? I think it would be extremely, extremely profound, extremely significant if he said something. I've had cases where community members have asked why why isn't he speaking why why can't he why can't he talk and say something and explain to us exactly what happened and we once you tell them that you know this is his right he can choose to remain silent and some of them do not understand it within communities it's it's an either or situation you have some people who would want him to speak there are others who say oh i don't care what he says about this entire process i i really I could care less. All I want is that trial to end and I get something out of it. So it's if he did speak, it would be it, it could go either way. Thanks very much, Sharon, for a real insight, I think, into the complexities of what the communities are thinking and also how tough it is to explain these kinds of processes. I mean, here we are in The Hague, Stephanie and I with our microphones and our ability to go and visit the trial at any time and talk to all kinds of experts, but it must be so tough there in the field. Even for us, it's it's hard to to grasp the trial as it, as it goes along. I mean, I followed it and I followed it pretty closely as one of the few journalists and still it's hard for me to pick up the things. I can hardly imagine how it is to have to do it in such fragmented pieces and with field visits and and trying to grasp the entirety of the trial and just the, the, the visits that you have. Well, thanks very much for updating us and um, we'll be uh, checking in with you to see if there are any specific reactions from the communities that you know when uh, the closing arguments have finished. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Sharon. Bye. Bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.